Hi, everybody. Tony Marcolini. Uh, welcome to It May Interest You to Know. My co-host Seamus McDonough and I are very excited to uh, have best-selling author, speaker, all-around motivator, uh, Matthew Dix, back to the podcast today. Welcome, Matthew. It is an honor to be back. I, I really, I chased after you to, <laughs> to get you to come back uh, because I read The Other Mother. I mean, last time you were here, we talked about uh, uh, Something's Missing and uh, Diary of an Imaginary Friend, uh, Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend. I think those were the only two books of yours that we got to last time, although I've made no secret of the fact that I am absolutely just a rabid uh, fangirl, uh, obsessed with your books, read everything you write, <laughs> uh, fan. We only did get to two of them. And I and uh, I wanted to discuss today a few of your other books, but I guess from first and foremost, I should start with the newest one, even though I, ha I have to get to two other books that you had and that you've written. Um, so let's start with the other mother. You did it to me again, right? You took, you found just the most unlikely protagonist. And I love that about you. You always pick the underrepresented voices, the people who you'd never expect to see as a protagonist, uh, maybe people with, with troubles or disabilities, uh, and you have them just living their best life and they become the unlikely heroes of all your novels. I love that. I have to ask you, what, for the other mother, I mean, he has a particular, uh, I mean, you don't, I don't know if I'm, I don't want to give any spoilers away, uh, but what, what was your motivation in writing The Other Mother? Sure. Well, I guess it's going to spoil it a little bit. I'll try to avoid it as much as I can. I was driving in my car about 12 years ago, and I heard an NPR story about a particular mental condition that is rare, but you know exists and can often be tragic to the person who suffers from it. And I remember in the car thinking that would make for a very interesting novel. So usually when I'm coming up with an idea for a book, it's always two ideas. So that was just one idea. So a book about a person who's suffering from this particular malady would be interesting if I could find something to combine with it. And so that idea rolled around in my head for 12 years. And then one day I was riding my bike and I was thinking about my parents my mom divorced my father when I was seven or eight, and she left my father essentially for a pretty terrible person. And then for the next 10 years of my life, I had to deal with this pretty terrible person. And he sort of tore my family down a little bit at a time until there was nothing left. And for the longest time, I was just angry at my mother for making this ridiculous and terrible decision that sort of threw our family into turmoil forever. And I remember on my bike one day, it just occurred to me that my mother's just a human being, like that she was my mother, but she was also like, just sadly like me, capable of making terrible decisions. And that oftentimes when we look at our parents, we view them as this like idealized version of themselves. You know, we, we think they're going to be perfect because we're kids and we know we're not perfect. So we expect them to sort of make the world perfect for us. And then they don't, and we can't quite figure out why so often. 
And so I thought about that a lot. And I thought, well, it would be interesting if you could actually look at your parents through some more objective, through a more objective lens. Imagine what it would be like to see your parents, you know, in the way that you could see them today, as opposed to the way you saw them as a child. And so the idea of this mental condition that people suffer with, and the idea of a boy who maybe needs to see his mother through new eyes, you know, to appreciate her for who she is and not for the flawed person he thinks she is, those two things came together and that made the book. So it's always, it's always the fusion of two ideas that sometimes come together in five seconds and sometimes come together in 12 years. Well, it's another page turner. I find it very hard to read your books and not, uh, and put them down. Uh, because you, you're, they're so, I, I said last time, the ride you take the reader on is just irresistible. And once you start reading, it's you have to know, I mean, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And 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 again, you like I said, you did it. I thought your protagonist, for the longest time, I didn't know where you were going with it. I have to admit, early on in the story, it, I was... I'm thinking like, is this a dream? Is there some, uh, you know, is there some something to that? I mean, he's not going science fiction on me, right? There's not going to be some, like, I, I wasn't really sure you were going because I so liked your protagonist, right? I so liked the main character. And I just couldn't believe anything else would be going on with him. It just felt to me so genuine and so real. And I, and I think, and it's something you capture that I don't find in many other writers um, is that you're able to tell a story as if you're right up in the brain of somebody else. I mean, how do, how do you do that? Well, I'm, if I'm going to talk about anything that I'm good at, you know, the thing that seems to come much easier to me is I am able to sort of be the character, the protagonist that I am writing about. I never have a plot. I never know where my story is going. I have never have a vision for what the end is going to be. But I always yeah. have an idea. Yeah, I never know. I'm always surprised. I often cry while writing the last chapters of my book because I am as, as surprised by them as the reader is. But I know who the person is. And it's sort of an act of pretending to be that person. And so I you know, limit my scope and perspective to what that protagonist is going to be. And then I just sort of move through the world that I have created for the protagonist and that develops the plot as I go through it. So yeah, I never have an idea what my story is going to be ever, ever. So you don't, like a lot of other authors I've spoken to, they say, well, I write an outline to, of the book, you know, what all the chapters are going to be about. And then I sit down to write. That's not what you do. No, I, I used to try that and I would get about 30,000 words into every book and they would all be terrible. And then uh, one day I went to Boca Raton with my wife to visit her grandmother for the first time. And uh, I found out that Nana didn't have Wi-Fi or cable television and she was driving. So I didn't rent a car. So I was sort of trapped in this retirement community, this walled retirement community with nothing to do. And I didn't have the typical post-it notes and whiteboard and, you know, sort of charting materials that I had always used to try to write novels. I was stuck with nothing. And so for the first time ever, I started writing without a plan, thinking I was going to write a short story. And that ultimately became something missing, my first novel. And it was the, it was the moment I realized that I don't actually need to know where I'm going. I just need to know who I have to sort of go on the journey with. And once I find the person, once that protagonist becomes someone apparent to me, I just trust that there'll be an end to the story. 
So is that what the creative process looks like for you? I mean, you just, I mean, some, some authors will tell me, I, you know, stories come together when I'm in the shower or I, I plan everything out or I need to go for a run, I play with the dog and then I sit down or I meditate. What does creative look like for you? Nothing ever happens unless I'm typing. You know, I can think about it as much as I want, but until I'm actually engaged in the act of physically writing, the story doesn't really move forward for me. It, it's sort of like reading. It sounds crazy, I know, but it's almost like I'm reading the book while I'm writing the book because I really genuinely don't know what's going to happen next. There are moments when I can see a little bit further ahead than others, but it's like driving on a highway in the middle of the night with no street lights, and I've just got the headlights on, and that's as far as I can see down the road. Now, sometimes those headlights, maybe I hit the high beams and I can see a little further along, but with every single one of my books, the endings, the last three chapters, I would have not been able to tell you I was close to the end until I started writing those, those ending chapters. Oh, that is fascinating. So you literally sit down and become the character. You, I mean, you're driving along and, and it's all happening in your head as you're putting it down on the paper. Yeah, it really is. It's it's funny because if you were to watch me, you know, occasionally my family sees me writing, like you'll hear me gasp because I will be surprised by the thing that just happened, you know, or I will be in tears and my wife will say, why are you crying? And I say, well, I just can't believe what just happened in this book, you know? And she understands it now, you know, in a way that she didn't originally. When I was writing Something Missing, I was writing the last chapter. And that is a book about a thief who uh, steals things that go unnoticed. Martin is his name. And at the end of the book, he's climbing some stairs. And sort of like at that moment in the book, he's either going to be safe or not safe. He's going to be hurt or not hurt. He's going to end up in jail or not jail. There's a lot of possibilities sort of thrown up in the air at the very end of the book. And as I'm writing it, my wife calls me and I say, I got to go. I think I'm on the last chapter. And okay. she said, what do you think is going to happen to Martin? Because she had been reading along. And I said, I don't know. He's only halfway up the stairs. I think I'm going to find out when he gets to the top of the staircase. And I genuinely had no idea whether Martin was going to live or die end up in jail or end up free, end up with the girl or not get the girl, end up caught or not get caught. I didn't know any of it until he got to the top of those stairs. It's just the way it works for me. Great to meet you, Matthew. I'm sorry I, sorry I was late. I got to, it's I quite got all right. It's, it's very Thank nice you know. to meet you. Immersed in the flow. That's totally immersed in the flow, huh? Well, you know, what I say is that I think there are writers like Jonathan Franzen, for example, who sits down and says, I want to write a post 9-11 book about the way that marriages have been torn apart by the fracturing of the male psyche and the prominence of women in today's society. And then they go and do that. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's people like me, and I know there's others like me, who write from the back of the brain, which is the sort of the unconscious part of the brain, mm -hmm. which is, I just want to write an interesting story about this person who I've found and this sort of question that I often find. All my stories basically open with a character and a question, a what if. And then I proceed. Now, I think something's going on in the brain. I don't think it's magic. I don't think I'm, you know, drawing from the ether. I think I'm just allowing my unconscious to do so much of the work for me. And I'm just remaining open to the process and non-judgmental to the process, which I think is really important. I'm not, I'm not valuing or, you know, disvaluing the words that I'm putting on the page. I'm just trusting that in the end, the story is going to be there. And in the beginning, the first couple of books, 
I didn't know if the ending would ever come. You know, I was a little worried that will there be the ending to the story? Or am I just going to like sputter out? But every book I've written, including the, you know, I've got two that haven't published yet. They all have endings and all the endings almost seem like they were there in the beginning, even though they were absolutely not there in the beginning. Oh, now you have me curious. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, it's a, but it's a lesson though I tell writers all the time, especially kids, because every kid is told they have to fill out a graphic organizer before they begin writing. And every writer is told they have to have a plan. You know, even nonfiction writers are told they have to have a plan. And I think probably about half the writers of the world write in the way that I write. And I've met many writers who describe it the same way I describe it. Uh, I just don't think we afford people the opportunity to explore the way we engage in this craft and allow them to be a little more free. Um, I think the problem really is, is that most writing instruction is delivered by people who do not write. You go to high school and your English teacher is not actually a writer. They're not engaged in the writing process. So oftentimes writing instruction is, here is what I imagine writers do. I'm gonna teach you what I think writers might do. And to characterize what writers do would be ridiculous anyway, because there's such an enormous variety in terms of the way we approach the craft. And yet curriculum is designed that there is one way to approach the craft, because that is the way it's easily assessed and easily taught. And it's not the way that it works for so many people. Well, I love your style of writing. I mean, and it explains a lot, you know, with your characters, because it, it isn't very formulamatic you know the stuff you put doesn't follow a formula your characters and that's what i meant about it just an irresistible ride that's how you feel like you're just sucked into this world and you never know what's going to happen next and it's so fascinating that that's how you perceive it you're sitting down you don't know what's going to happen next it's like the characters are telling you what they want to do yeah very much so yeah it's it's i know it sounds weird but it is true i'm also obsessed with story which I think is just as important. I, I go into every story I tell, whether it's on a stage or on a page, with the assumption that no one wants to hear from me and that anyone can close a book at any time and walk away from it. And so what I'm constantly doing when I'm writing and when I'm speaking is I'm trying to create wonder in the minds of my audience. I'm trying to force them to read the next page or force them to listen to the next 30 seconds of the story I'm telling on stage. And I think a lot of times what happens is People assume that because they've bought your book or assume that they've sat down in an audience to listen to you, that they will now give you their attention. And I just never think that is the case. I think I'm constantly fighting for attention and it's in that battle for attention that when I'm crafting a story and when I'm sort of deciding how I want to write it, that I'm always thinking about the reader and thinking, how can I make sure this reader can't put this book down? That is the goal I always have. So I'm obsessed with that idea of story. I just want to tell a good story. And, you know, if you get something else from it, that's great. But I just really want to tell a good story. Oh, no worries there, Matthew. <laughs> you tell a good story. Uh, I have to talk about two other books. I know initially I said I only wanted to talk about the, uh, the, the, pre the present book, the one I just read, The Other Mother and the, the, the Perfect Comeback of Caroline Jacobs. But I have to sneak in 21 Truths About Love. Uh, and I know I'm throwing this one at you spontaneously, but this was a book that I was so skeptical about. Me too. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 was, I was like, did, 
I, I, I really kind of didn't feel it. Like initially I said, I just don't understand. It's a book about what lists, like I'm never going to get into a story about like that's written in lists. I couldn't quite understand what the, you know, how, how, where's all my, where's all my flower and my stuff. And I just, I just couldn't imagine that I was going to care about that book. I thought that book was just going to be something I picked up because I love your stuff uh, and said, all right, he had a one-off. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I was expecting to have happen. And as I said, you just, you did it to me again. I read a book all the way through to the end that's entirely written in the form of this one guy making lists. And it, and it's, it's every day. And it, I think it appeared to be almost every day. I have to go back and check your, your book to make sure the diary followed that closely. But it's, it's a diary, if you will, where he, he writes lists every day about kind of what he's thinking or what's going on in his life or what his goals or objectives are that day. And in doing the lists, you, you get to see about his life. You get to learn about his life. You know, if he's, he's just wishing his wife was like happier that day or uh, that is, you know, whatever that, whatever's going on that day that he's thinking about or wishing about his long-term goals, or if he's secretly trying to hide something that he's thinking, you find out his thoughts through these series of lists that he creates and you see what happens. Like if they went to a party, like, you know, things that happen in the party become ingrained in new lists <laughs> uh, as he's you know revisiting because it's not a diary written out like you'd expect a diary where it's like oh I went to this party and uh, you know where I'm talking talking to the diary and it's not in any way written in narrative form it's just like a collection of thoughts that he records and in the way I'm describing it sounds probably horrible <laughs> but it isn't <laughs> But it isn't, trust me. Like when you actually get ingrained, I mean, you're turning the page for the next list. Like, well, what, you know, like you want to know what happened the next day, what's going on in his life. Because again, <laughs> you did it. You sucked me right into his brain. You burrowed right into the center, right? And, and, and took me through every day as to what he's thinking. Well, thank you. I'm really glad. I was, I was equally skeptical. It, that was not a book I planned on writing. You know, that began as a notebook that I was passing around during faculty meetings as a teacher to try to entertain my colleagues when we had a terrible principal. Uh, I just, we had a really terrible principal for a short period of time. And while that principal was conducting meetings, I saw my friends' psyches be slowly scoured away. And so I had a notebook in front of me one day and I wrote a list that was essentially the dumbest things principals do. And I made a list and we passed it around the table and I watched them all smile. And I thought, okay, good, I made them smile. I'm gonna write another list now. And I wrote another sort of education-based list, something about teachers or schools. And that got passed around the table and everyone smiled. And that's what I started doing for a while in faculty meetings and terrible training sessions. Whenever this man was in front of us, torturing us, I would write lists in this notebook and pass it around. And then, then there was a day I wrote a list and I passed it around. And I remember my friend Amy looked at the list and she pointed at the list and at me. And I understood what she meant, which was like, this is an interesting list, but this does not reflect what you believe, Matthew Dix. And I realized, oh, she's right. Like, this is actually not my list. This is the list of this person I have in my head now, this protagonist who has sort of popped into my head, fully realized. 
And so I started writing lists sort of like based upon this other person, again, with the whole purpose of just entertaining my friends. And then I had a meeting with my agent and she said, what are you working on? And I mentioned after all the real books I was writing, I said, oh, I got this notebook I'm passing around, it's lists. And she said, that'd be a fascinating book, a book written entirely in lists. And I said, well, that's a stupid idea. And she said, no, it's great. And so she pitched it to my editor and my editor said, that's a stupid idea. And I thought, good, me and my editor agree. And so the, it was just pushed aside. And then, um, and then my editor left. She left the publishing agency and I got a new editor at St. Martin's. And um, in that initial meeting, we were talking about The Other Mother, which was the book that was supposed to come out. And my new editor said, I heard you have like a book about lists. And um, your previous editor said, I should not look at it, that it's a terrible idea. She said, but I'm just curious. Can you send it to me? So I sent it to her. And then uh, three days later, she called me and she said, we love The Other Mother, but we don't want it to be your next book. We want this list book to be the next book. And I said, it's not a book. It's just a notebook full of lists. <laughs> and she said, we know, but we want you to make it the book that we think it can be. And uh, I fought them tooth and nail the whole way. Now, my wife believed in it instantly. My agent believed in it instantly. This new editor believed in it instantly. I was the one who they had to you know, drag along kicking and screaming because it was the most challenging book I've ever written. Not because I couldn't use narrative, but because the nature of the book, which is a series of lists that Dan writes obsessively, those lists can be put in any order. And, and, and the actual items in the list can be put in any order. And in my mind, the order of the lists and the ordering of each individual list and the time and the date when it was written, all of those are profoundly important, which left me with thousands of decisions I typically don't have when writing a book. I don't usually have to make all of these minute decisions that in my mind change everything. And so, um, so I was surprised too that the book worked, but it's uh, been very well received and I'm thrilled that people enjoy it. And I have to say, it's, it's maybe your funniest. It did allow me to be humorous. Yes, I was able to just throw in ideas that were exclusively Matthew Dixon's. Like my wife was reading it and she, she would say, well, this list is just stuff that you've been saying for 10 years that you think is funny. And you finally get to put it on a page. And I said, yes, that is very much true. But I still cried at the end of the book. I, I, I wept at the end of writing that book. Uh, <laughs> when, when Bill comes in at the end and, and things happen in a hospital room, I cried while I was writing those final lists. And if I read it today, if I read my own book today, or I listened to the audio version of it, I would still cry. I still feel that way about it. Well, yeah, I think... Because I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to misspeak or or turn anybody off to the book. There's a story you can clearly follow the story, and it's mostly built around his relationships, uh, and and he's funny. I mean, the 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 person making the list, his main character is is funny, and I don't think he intends to be. Uh, right. right. He kind of just put a list together that you know, is hysterically funny, but he, he's thinking it in his head, like, you know, just trying to get through the day. <laughs> yeah. He's um, very different than me. He's, he's sort of, um, you know, in a lot of ways, he's the opposite of me. Cause I'm sort of an overly confident, arrogant, annoying, you know, person who insists on everyone being successful around him. And Dan, the protagonist in this book is an underconfident, never feeling very good about himself, constantly sort of battling his demons kind of person. He would never be my friend in real life but you know i i think he, his flaws and his 
his struggles with ordinary life helped the book to be very funny in in the in the way he sees the world. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I I definitely thought it was your funniest book. Although there's always humor in your books to a certain extent. Um, I think all the protagonists you put together see the world uh, differently. That's why I, I meant they're like they're unlikely heroes, and there's always some humor into into their description or their world or you, a lot of them have somewhat of a wicked sense of humor there's a lot of wittiness to your characters and which i Thank know you. from talking to you is because you're very witty well um, i i'm very interested in i'm i'm very interested in people who are willing to be themselves in a world that insists upon conformity you know we tell kids to be themselves to blaze their own path to you know to be an individual but when you actually get out into the real world and you are really one of those strikingly individualistic, out of the ordinary, operating in your own lane kind of people, you're often punished for it. And so, so often everyone is sort of pushed to a level of conformity. And so I like to write about people who dare to be themselves, despite the fact that the people around them kind of don't want them to be themselves. Uh, those are the heroes that I'm sort of attracted to. I think the most courageous thing to do in the world is to be yourself when other people don't like who you are. So I like that a lot about people. I I agree. And I think that's... I agree also. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an important message, especially for uh, young minds, right? That it's okay to be different. And that's a very important message to tell. Well, also you're going, it's, it's okay to be different but you also must be prepared for what is coming down the road. Like my, I have a daughter um, who has autism. She is the kind of um, child with aut autism that you wouldn't know she has autism unless you really got to know her. You know, she's a very social person. She's outgoing. She gets intensely obsessed with certain topics to the point that she becomes an exceptional expert about them and sort of fixates on topics, even the ones I don't care about. So right now she's into mythology, which I hate. I have no interest whatsoever in mythology and yet I have to hear about it every day. But the thing that I always give Clara credit for, she's 12, is she is keenly aware of how she is different from many of her classmates. And she's sort of armored for it every day. She goes into school knowing I'm going to be myself and there will be a segment of the population in the school that will not be kind to me because of who I am. But she makes the active choice to just openly be the person she wants to be, which I find extraordinary. And as a parent also, it devastates me every day to find out that she's going to a place where a certain segment of the kids are not kind to her because she's being herself. So I'm both so impressed and like so proud of her. And yet I want to go in that school every day and push some kids up against the locker and tell them to knock it off. So, you know, that's the kind of person I'm sort of attracted to in my books. And I did that before she was born. So I just got lucky to end up with the kind of daughter who would be a protagonist in one of my novels. Well, that is extraordinary. Uh, and I think that's a great example, a trailblazing example for your daughter to be setting. Yeah, she's really, she's a fantastic human being. She's also a pain in the butt many, many times too, let's be clear. She's not, she's not, a, she's 12. So she's got all of that on top of her wonderfulness as well. Yeah, a great age for, for yeah. girls. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I, then I, I also want to talk about uh, the 
the perfect comeback of Caroline Jacobs, because this is a book that is very much about mothers and daughters, as much as it is about anything. It's about mothers and daughters. Yeah. Caroline is, I guess, at a crossroads in her life well, we all have baggage from our youth, right? That that festers sometimes as we grow. And I think Caroline comes to a point where her history is somewhat catching up with her. Unresolved emotions of her history are catching up with her. And she doesn't have a very good relationship with her daughter. And through, no. a, and through a series of... Uh, interesting things that occur or mishaps or things that occur. She winds up on what is an extended road trip and somewhat of an adventure with her daughter that enables them to see each other in a new way. I guess that's the best way to put it. Yeah. That's uh, pretty good. Yeah. And, and have somewhat of a new respect for each other. I loved this book. Uh, this was a book about, uh, you know, things aren't always what they seem. It's about redemption and it's about, you know, having a better relationship, you know, with your, with your children uh, and, and how to do that uh, and giving kids more credit maybe than parents do give them. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and, and just about kind of staring down your past sometimes and recognizing the impact it has on your future choices. And yeah. you it, as always, you weave it all together in one story that you make me stay up all night to finish. <laughs> <sighs> well, you know, it's it started because I was lying in bed with my wife one night and we were talking about, we're talking about like high school bullies or mean things that had been said to us. And my wife said that she had a friend over one time sleeping over her house and my wife was in her bed, you know, she was 14 or 15 and there was a kid on the floor. Her friend was sleeping on the floor. And her friend, and she, her friend as she was getting ready to go to bed said, boy, I have a friend whose bathroom is bigger than your whole bedroom. And it was just sort of an unkind thing to say, you know, indicating that like you have a small bedroom and your family doesn't have as much money as many of my friends. And I said, well, that'd be, wouldn't that be an interesting book if you like went and hunted that girl back down? Because like my wife didn't have a comeback that night. She just went to sleep, you know, and I'm gifted with the ability to say the worst thing at the right moment to make someone feel bad. It's just an unfortunate talent that I have. I'm, I never leave a room thinking the, of the better of the better comeback. I always have it and I say it. It's a terrible thing though, oftentimes. But I know a lot of people don't have that. It's often, you know, two hours later, you suddenly think of the good thing you should have said. And so I said, well, maybe we should go find her. You know, maybe we should go <laughs> find that Emily girl. And my wife said, it's not a big deal, Matt. And I thought to myself, well, you do remember it. And it was worth mentioning to me. So you can say it doesn't mean anything to you. But if it really meant nothing to you, honey, you would have forgotten it a long time ago. And yet it's still in your head. And I said, wouldn't that be an interesting book? Someone goes back and finds their high school bully and says the thing they've always wanted to say. And my wife said, go to bed. That doesn't sound like a very good book. And uh, eventually that's what it ultimately becomes. It's, it's a book about a woman who you know, in her probably mid thirties, realizes that an, an event that took place in high school has sort of pushed her off course. It's the idea of scientists say that like, if we ever discover that an asteroid is coming towards the earth, one of the ways to actually stop the asteroid is if we just park a spaceship next to the asteroid, a tiny little bit of gravitational pull will eventually over time cause the asteroid to miss the earth. It's the idea that you can just be pushed off course 
a teeny tiny bit, but over the course of a long period of time, you can end up in a really different place than where you intended. And so in this book, Caroline Jacobs, she's pushed at, in high school just a tiny bit, but she's allowed that sort of push to proceed for 30 years or 20 years. And suddenly she finds herself in a place she's not very happy about. You know, she's dissatisfied with her life and she tracks it back to the idea of that day in high school when that person who I thought was my friend did that terrible thing to me and it caused me to think differently about myself for the rest of my life. And lo and behold, she's going to go find that person. And I think that appeals to a lot of people because I think a, a lot of people in this world have that person who they'd like to go back and say the thing that they've been waiting to say for 20 years. And she gets to at least try to do that. Well, I have to say, resentment is the number one offender. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I like vengeance a lot, you know, uh, and I always think about karma. I have a friend who's a big, um, a big believer in karma. And I often tell him, I say, you know, when I go after someone in my terrible way, saying the, the worst thing at the right moment to make someone suffer, he says, let karma take care of it. And I always say, mm. but what if I'm karma? What if I am the person functioning as karma? And he always says, you're not karma. And then I always say, you really believe you have so much knowledge about the universal nature of mm. karma that you can tell me whether I am or not karma. <laughs> so yeah. I like that idea a lot too. I like the idea that there are just times in our lives when maybe some human being can do the thing that needs to be done, you know, like get, gets to enact the revenge that we would all like to see happen. Uh, not that this book is a, necessarily that happens at the end. This is another example of one of those books that I thought Caroline Jacobs was going to go back to her hometown, find her bully, say the thing she's always wanted to say, and that's the end of the book. And I was about a third of the way through the book when essentially that was about to happen. And I thought, oh no, I think I've written a novella. This isn't long enough to be a novel. And then I discovered, oh, I'm only a third of the way through. So again, it's one of those ideas that I have no idea where my books are going to end. Right. And I think that what an important thing that you, you know, you faced head on is we always imagine that our bullies, you know, are living uh, glamorous, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, exceptional lives somehow that maybe uh, the way they were in high school continued on a charmed uh, youth and a charmed adulthood. And that's often not the case. Yeah, it very much is. I just finished a book on productivity, uh, on accomplishing creative productivity. And there's actually a chapter on sort of eliminating terrible people from your life, eliminating those forces that cause you problems. And I have <laughs> these four strategies in the book on how to deal with a person who's sort of negatively influencing you. And one of those strategies is empathy. It is find out why that person is such a miserable, rotten, awful human being. And if you find that there's an actual reason behind it and you could find empathy for the person, they stop being terrible. Their behavior continues to be terrible. They continue to be a rotten human being. You know, they continue to be a negative force in the world. But if you can empathize with them, that negative force ceases to have any influence on you. And so I think that's part of going and finding out who that bully is and discovering maybe their life isn't as perfect as we envisioned it always to be. Now, is this the book I read? Uh, there's a book coming up um, in 2022, Someday is Today? Yes, that, yeah. That, so that's not that's definitely not out yet, but that's on the horizon. It is. The question I get asked the most in this world is how do I manage to do all the things that I do? Because I have a lot of 
pursuits. You know, I'm an elementary school teacher and a writer and a columnist and a storyteller and I have a company and all these things. And people say, how do you manage to do it? And so the book is essentially the answer to that question, because I can never answer that question unless you give me like 23 hours and no one wants to give me 23 hours to go through all the ways <laughs> I managed to do it. So I've written a book that answers that question uh, in hopes that other people can find the same creative energy and productivity that I managed to find on a daily basis. Now, how different was it to write nonfiction for you? Because I mean, you're a sto storyteller at heart. I am. Well, I wrote a book on storytelling called Storyworthy, which teaches people how to tell stories, you know, the oral, the oral version of storytelling. So that was my first nonfiction um, book. What I do with my nonfiction is if you read either Storyworthy or the one that's coming out some days today, there's a great deal of memoir in those books. I believe that the best sort of way to teach someone something or to get them to believe in it is to tell them a story about you either doing it or you failing to do it and then finding your way through it. And so, you know, people who read Storyworthy, they learn how to tell great stories, but they say, boy, at the end of the book, I feel like I just spent like nine hours with you and I feel like I know you. I feel like you're my friend. So I try to weave in a lot of story as well. I, I, I maintain that same belief that anyone can close a book at any time and never open it again. So how can I create wonder and anticipation even in my nonfiction where there's not a plot and character driving the story, but instead there's stories about Matt, stories about his kids. And here comes a great piece of wisdom that will help you be a better storyteller on a stage or in a dinner party or you know, in a boardroom if you're pitching a product, all of those kinds of places. So it's, it's not the same. And I miss the fiction right now because I've sort of been embedded in nonfiction quite a bit for the past year. I just actually emailed my agent today and said, once some days, some days today is put to bed, it's about to be put to bed. I said, I just want to write some fiction for a while. I just want to make some stuff up. And um, she's all in on that. She's, she agrees that I should be writing more fiction. So do we have wait. a, do we have a fiction novel coming up in 2022? It's not written yet. Uh, I have some days today and I also have a memoir on a summer I spent playing golf with my friends. So two, two nonfiction books are sort of in the hopper. Um, I have a YA book um, called Cardboard Night that I'm wrapping up right now. So it's sort of a fictionalized version of my childhood. And then hopefully the novel that will be next is, um, is it's, you know, maybe a quarter of the way finished. I'm excited about it, but Again, I have no idea where it's going to go. It starts with a what if and a character, and then I wait and see what happens. Oh my goodness, I wait for your books. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Every time, as soon as a book comes out, you know, I, I try to catch it right away. I appreciate that. Uh, you, I think you're exceptional. I read a lot, right? I don't think that's a big secret for anybody who listens to the podcast. Uh, I probably average about two books a week. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. <laughs> oh, I'm, 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 especially since the Nook came out, that became even easier for me because I can carry it with me everywhere I go. It's not where I have to keep track of, you know, where did I leave the book? Do I want to carry an extra, you know, larger book around with me? But I have the Nook with me. I'll, I'll literally, I'll be chopping vegetables as I'm looking over, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Move, just moving the next page along. Uh, and so I think since that came out, it made it even easier for me since I get most of my books digitally. Um, but I, I'm an avid, uh, yeah, rabid reader. I mean, I, I just, I, I just gobble it up when it's a story I like, and there's some authors that are just 
perfect for me. And you're definitely perfect for me. I mean, the stories that you create, I, I want to finish once I start, I don't want to stop. I, I think, I, I think you're the only writer out there right now. And I'm not going to get a bunch of emails about this now, but, um, but you're the only writer I can, I can think of that truly takes on the unlikely heroes. Uh, and they happen every day, and we, we don't give that any credit. We're surrounded by unlikely heroes, people who aren't the strong or the rich uh, or the brightest, right? But they get through their day, and sometimes they make an impact more than any of us give, give them credit for. And I think you capture that in all your novels. You take these just characters who are, uh, I don't want to call them flawed, uh, although I think in the case of something's missing, he certainly was flawed <laughs> because he's he's well, a we're thief. All flawed. I yeah. mean, but I mean, he's a thief. I think I can safely. I mean, it's not just right. a disability. He's an actual thief. Uh, but again, that was the first novel I read of yours, and and you'd hooked me on you for life because I'd never read anything about. Ima imagine the premise. I mean, an OCD guy is a burglar, is a house burglar. You yeah. know, and how does that, and you can imagine all the things that happen as somebody who robs houses and you have OCD and, and all these things happen to him and, and he, and that, and the mindset, how it works. And you just dug right into the brain and you took him through where he's robbing houses, but he just, you know, he cares about the people and he, you know, still has all the rules that somebody with OCD would have, right? About about yeah. touching things or getting some, you know, and, and so he's he's balancing ritual like behavior with going into these houses and stealing what he needs. And so he, you know, you wouldn't even think is this person a hero because they're so on the wrong side of justice. Uh, but he turns out to be a hero. And you get to know more and get to see where, and you, I guess where that's where your empathy comes in. You start to get empathy for him and you watch his evolution as a character. And they're all that way, right? All your characters start off with either a disability or they're just not the popular person or they have some issue. And that's the person who you tell us the story about. I love well, you know. I'm blessed that I see it so often as an elementary school teacher, you know, like the moments of heroism that I see, you know, they happen when students are partnering off and I see the, the boy who can't find a partner today because his friend, you know, maybe his one friend is absent. And then I see the child who could partner with anyone in the world, you know, on any given moment chooses the boy who most children tend to avoid and says, hey, I'll be your partner today. And I just think like, that's the greatest act of heroism I'm going to see all month is, you know, or, or I teach my students, I say, there should never be anyone in America sitting at a cafeteria table alone. And it is your mission in life. If you walk into a cafeteria and you see someone sitting alone, it is your mission to sit with that person or to call that person over to your table. You know, and those little things I think are just those are the things that I think, like you described, they're not, they're not wearing capes and they're not flying around. But I, I think those little acts of courage and heroism can change a person's entire day and probably, you know, a person's whole outlook on their life. You know, if you sit alone in a cafeteria every day of your life and then someone walks up to you and says, why don't you come sit with us? 
it can just change that person's entire life. I think, you know, suddenly school is not as bad a place as it was yesterday and that there's hope for tomorrow. And, and that's what I like to capture in my books is those smaller people that I think go unnoticed, but are making differences, even if they're robbing, you know, in the course of robbing someone, they are also simultaneously sort of falling in love with the person they're robbing and trying to make their life better while taking their toothpaste. You know, <laughs> even that I, I said, that's, that's that unnoticed hero that I sort of love. Yeah, which is exactly what, what does happen, right? You're in, in something's missing. That's exactly what happens. He kind of sees himself eventually as the protector. He goes to care about them. He, he, he stops in the middle of his burglary to look at the pictures from their vacation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, part of that too is, you know, like that character, Martin, he has a hard time interacting with the world, you know? And sometimes the easiest way to interact with people is at a distance. You know, I'm a performer. I stand on stages all the time. And I can tell you that most of the performers I work with, storytellers and comedians, they're very shy people who come to life on a stage when there's distance between them and the other human beings, that safe distance that allows them to be themselves. But when they come off the stage and they come back into the green room, they sort of don't know what to do with themselves. You know, it's very hard for them. Uh, there's many, many introverts who you would never suspect to be an introvert the way they perform on stage. And, you know, in that book, Martin is sort of the ultimate introvert that, you know, the best way that he can interact with people is when they're out of the house, I can get to get to know you a little bit better and I can figure out what's going on in your life. And that's his level of comfort that he can have with people. Very true. Uh, again, I highly recommend uh, your books to anyone who has yet to try a Matthew Dix book. Uh, you will not be disappointed. You'll read one and you will go buy all the others uh, because that's, that's, you're a storyteller at heart. I know you do that on a stage. I've seen clips. If you go on your website, which I think is, is MatthewDix.com. Yeah. Um, if you go on your website, you can see uh, s videos of times that you've told stories on stage so certainly you can get a little glimpse of what you're like verbally telling a story, which is equally as fascinating. Thank uh, you. But I, 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 my most experience with you is to pick up your book. And that, like I said, that was the first book I read. And then after that, I just became a fan. So I, I definitely read everything that comes out from you. And I always wonder like wh whose journey will he take me on now? Right, because it's never the celeb. It's never the celebrity who's starring in the main, you know, in the best, biggest movie out there. I know I'm going to find this underrepresented category of people, um, you know, whose story you tell and and whose stories is so fascinating. Yeah, it's the challenge of the bookseller. When I go visit bookstores, they always say the challenge of selling your books is every book is completely different than the last one. So it's not like, can I have the next Matthew Dix detective story or the next Matthew Dix world war II epic or the, you know, the next Matthew Dix romance story. It's well, this one's about a thief. And you know, this one's actually written from the perspective of an imaginary friend. And this one's written in the form of lists. So they're all like very, very different. So you have to sort of, you know, be in on me as opposed to in on the genre. You know, my agent once said, I write quirky fiction. And I said, well, that's nice, but has anyone ever in the history of the world said, I like quirky fiction? You know, <laughs> it's not really a genre that works. So <laughs> I don't I'll sign a up. Lot of places. 
I, yeah, I like it too. I like quirky a lot, but I just, I don't think that's when people walk into a bookstore that I don't think they're thinking, I want to find something a little quirky, you know, like a little funny and it's going to make me cry at the end. Um, that's what I'm shooting for, but it, you know, it's hard to sell that. You know, I see on the, this is the last thing, um, I know, cause I know we're wrapping up, but I see sometimes there are groups on Facebook, you know, dedicated to just people who love to read. And that is exactly how they couch your books. You know, they, they are quirky. And anytime there's a question someone will throw out like, hey, you know, I'm in the mood for a quirky read. You're always on the, you know, you're always on the list. Uh, you know, you're always suggested. <laughs> and then sometimes I, it's me suggesting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. But sometimes I see a lot of other people will say the same thing. That, that That's a, a great buzzword you picked up on quirky. But I think there's a much higher demand for that than you even realize. Well, I, I, it's the kind of book I want to read, you know, it's the kind of book that I love is, you know, the one where I get to meet people who are a little different than what I would normally meet on the street. And they're going to make me laugh. They're going to make me cry. And there's always going to be, you know, there's always going to be a character in the book that you would really never expect to meet in the world. And yet here this person is, and you get to spend some time with them. So that's, that's what I hope for all the time. Well, that's what you succeed in doing. Uh, we're going to wrap up the podcast now, uh, but I'm going to invite Matthew to come back. I hear this book's on the horizon for 2022, and I'm going to say, please come back and talk to us about your books. Anytime. I would be more than happy to come back. And we're nice gonna to put, meet you, Matthew. Yes, very nice to meet you, Seamus. And we're going to put the link. I mean, I think it's MatthewDix.com. Simple yep. enough. You can go there and read about his books, and you can see videos of him and learn all about him. Yeah, I think you have a newsletter you can subscribe to as well. Yes, that's true. Mistaken. Yep. Yes. Um, so you can go right there. We'll put the link in the comments. You could literally just go to Google and put in Matthew Dix, and all his books will come up. So thank you, Matthew, for joining us. I'll continue to be. I think I'm your number one fan. I, I'm thrilled to have a number one fan. So thank you. I want to start a fan club. I want to start a Matthew Dix fan club. I think my daughter would kill you if you did that. <laughs> it's the last thing she wants to hear in this world that there's a Matthew Dix fan club. 12 year olds. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. We'll see you in 2022. That sounds great. Thanks. Thank you both. Bye, Matthew. Bye bye.